if we are Anglicans, we believe in the episcopacy because we believe in apostolic succession and, and we're not congregationalists. We can't just say, I will focus on my parish. If your bishop is a heretic and you are a vicar, vicariously ministering <laughs> for your bishop, that makes you a heretic too. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. And we are excited today to welcome the Reverend Calvin Robinson to the podcast. Calvin is probably best known as a television presenter, hosting Calvin's Common Sense Crusade on GB News in the UK, but he's also an ordained Anglican minister, serving as deacon at Christ Church Harlesden in London, a parish in the Free Church of England. Calvin, it's great to have you you on Stand Firm today. It is my absolute pleasure to be on Stand Firm. Thank you for the invitation. Well, we wanted to talk to you about a lot of things, uh, the current state of the Church of England, what's going on with Anglicanism in England outside the C of E, as well as a recent protest you attended, one of which at which you were not, you were called a not a real vicar, um, and mm. the relationship b- between being a parish minister and a political commentator, but why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your history, and how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Oh, no, that's the one question I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> I hate talking about myself. <laughs> um, I we only, have, we only have two or three listeners, so I wouldn't worry about <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the Midlands, from the East Midlands. My mother is a teacher, and I always thought I will never, ever become one of those because I saw her life was so stressful she dedicated but she dedicates everything to her job but it's just full on it is a vocation so i learned about vocations through my mother i thought whatever i do in life i just do not want to become a teacher um so i entered industry in technology i did programming and development and i loved it made a bit of money had, had a lot of fun and it was very unfulfilling unrewarding and i was not content and i reached a point in my life where i thought actually I do need to look at vocations. I need to look at what I'm called to. And I didn't use that terminology because this is this is pre-Christianity. But I I was searching for something else. And I became a school teacher. And I, I realized afterwards that that was the start of my vocation, but not the fulfillment of it. And teaching is, is obviously part of what I do, but now I'm a deacon. And I think entering teaching is what drew me to the faith too. It's It's being part of church schools that led me to church, which led me to Christ, which led mm-hmm. me to my ordained vocation. So you're you're one of the three people that actually traced their religious conversion to an actual church school, as opposed to uh, the reason why they are no longer Christians, <laughs> which yes. is good. That's good. That's good to hear. It's encouraging. Uh, the number of yeah, people that I've met that, that went to, at least over here, you know, sort of a, a boarding school that was connected to uh, a church, you know, it's like the last time they ever went to church was the their graduation. And, the, and they're happy to point that out to me also. And I say, well, let's work on let, let, let's let's work on that. That's, that's heartening to hear. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I've only well, I've mostly worked in church schools and I can understand where people are coming from because a lot of the time. The faith is an afterthought, unfortunately, especially yeah. in Anglican schools, in, in England at least. The Catholics do it a bit better because they at least recruit Christians as teachers where they can. That's right. But I was giving right. an assembly at a Catholic school last week, and he said only 5% of our teachers are Catholics. We just can't find them anymore. I'm just yeah. like, wow, is it that bad? Yeah, yeah. I had a, a friend of mine that t- toured a um, 
religious school. I'm going to try to keep it as as general as possible. But suffice it to say, they were in the chapel and the person giving the tour who didn't know that this person was also an ordained clergy person said, um, don't worry, we don't do any of that Jesus loves me stuff here in the in the heart of the chapel, as if that was a selling point, oh, you know, to gosh. the parents. <laughs> well, like, well, you know, uh, so what do you do along. <laughs> well, I mean, I've actually well, I actually spent some time working in these schools right out of college, waiting for my wife to graduate. Um, and so I saw that it's essentially and many of them are kind of Unitarian at best, uh, kind of like spiritualized Unitarian Thomas Jefferson type chapels, you know, with uh, Tibetan prayer flags and, um, you know, all sorts of. Well, it's just pantheism, really, is what it is, yeah. if, if it's theism at all. But at any rate. Uh, every now and then you can smuggle someone in, you know, you can kind of, uh, you get someone, uh, you know, who actually is a believer and they can do wonderful work there. So we pray for that. In fact, yeah, it's wonderful to hear. Praise God. You're a product uh, as intended out of the church schools. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, I mean, Christ even uses non-believers to get his message out there, doesn't he? So all yeah. is not lost, but it's just a shame that these chapels have become rooms, isn't it? Uh, we have over here, we had, uh, Muslims in the Westminster Abbey this week praying Islamic prayers. And you're thinking, do yeah. you not believe in sacred space anymore? You know, That's right. We've, we've given it all over. Yeah, we had a, a famous uh, quote-unquote divinity school um, here, Duke Divinity, their chapel. They had a Muslim call to prayer out of the, the you know, the Gothic spires of its, um, of its uh, you know, bell tower. And there was a lot of uproar about that uh, because, of course, it was supported by the entire divinity faculty. And so you say, well, of course. So <laughs> it's a state of the world. There we go. That doesn't bother Matt at all, though. Matt Matt just takes that. Just, uh, That's old hat for Matt. That's right. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail Muslims it. I just was very, very, <laughs> that's right. It's very uh, heartened to hear that. What is your thought on that, Matt? I, you know, my church, I don't know if you know what happened to our, our parish. We lost our, our lawsuit to the Episcopal Church um, back during the, all, when all of the, the sexuality fight was in its mm -hmm. apex. And we had offered the Episcopal Church a certain amount of money just to let us have the building and the, and the rest of the property. And uh, they refused. And then they they won the lawsuit, took the property. And then about two years after that, they sold the property to Muslims for half the price we offered. So, so it was just, you know, I drive past it every day on my way to, on my way to work. I see my old church with the cross off the steeple and it's now a Muslim awareness center, I think is what they call it. It's really a mosque. So. No, I had heard that story. I think yeah, it's... they had well, they had no idea what bear they poked there because Matt was just sort of a a local uh, kind of grumpy Anglican vicar, and then they poked <laughs> the bear, and he went on a he went on a rampage, the likes of which we have not seen the no, end. I wouldn't call um, it a rampage. I would call it as Christians I mean, it's a healthy rampage. rampage. We go on, we we go on. You're like you're like Sir Bultitude um, at the at the last feast, uh, Mr. Bultitude, and you know you have been unleashed uh, amongst the. <laughs> <laughs> to terrorize the nice um that was my that's my that hideous strength reference for the yeah, for the uh well so yeah i'm gonna start calling you mr bolter dude i like it um <laughs> well okay let's get back on track yes. a little here. Um, <laughs> sorry i derailed this I apologize. <laughs> Calvin, just be quiet for yeah. five minutes fair enough all right <laughs> tell I'll us take, about the free church of england because i think that a lot of folks over here are curious to know about We've we've been talking about what's going on in the Church of England for a few weeks with mm. this sort of 
various stages we've been hearing about. I actually didn't know that the Free Church of England was an official thing until I was researching for this. Um, tell us about that church, its relationship with larger Anglicanism, and what is the state of things in Anglicanism in England right now? Yeah. I mean, I try not to talk about the Free Church of England too much, because, and to, the, to the frustration of my bishops, because I don't believe in this denominationalism. It's almost like congregationalism to me. I try to talk about the Gafcon umbrella as a whole, because I think that's far more important, because it stands for orthodoxy within Anglicanism around the world. And within the United Kingdom, we have a couple of jurisdictions within GAFCON. So we've got the Free Church of England, otherwise called the Reformed Episcopal Church, which I belong to. But we've also got Anglican Network in Europe, which is uh, a bit more evangelical. But there are there's more than one route in the UK for if, pe- if people do feel like the Church of England has left them behind. And I think that's important because people tend to think that the Church of England is synonymous with Anglicanism in the mm-hmm. UK. And yeah. of course, it isn't. It's just one of the Anglican churches. And I think it's also important to remind people that within the Free Church of England and within GAFCON, Great Britain and Ireland, we are in communion with 80% of Anglicans around the world as part of that GAFCON movement. So we, we're a minority in England, but we're a majority around the world. And that's important too, uh, because we're united in our orthodoxy and united in our faith in Christ, even if the Church of England moves away from him. So in in, in America, there's, you know, Anglicanism is a, a quite small thing. And I guess it's kind of a small thing in England too, but, but, um, <laughs> yeah, right. but, but, um, but there's a broad sense of Christianity, I guess, uh, maybe I'd say maybe serious Christians in America are probably talking about 50, 60%, maybe, I don't know. Would you say that England is pretty much spiritually gutted at this point? Is there, is there a, outside the Church of England, outside the Anglican realm is, is, how would you describe the spiritual state of England at this point, I guess? Lost, a bit confused. Mm -hmm. Most people in this country have always identified as Christians, even if it's just nominally, you know, the types that maybe go to church for Easter and Christmas, but they no longer do that. And Christianity is a minority faith in this country for the first time, pretty much ever. Um, And I think that is symptomatic of the wider issue that to be, I don't think people have changed. I think people are still the same. I think people's beliefs in general are still the same, but people don't identify as Christian anymore because it's not the done thing, because people see faith as quite old-fashioned and outdated and the opposite of liberal progressive. And it's you know, the done thing to be liberal and to be progressive That's right. uh, above and beyond, beyond everything else. So the very people who would have said, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, but still wouldn't have gone to church, are now saying, of course I'm not a Christian but still don't go to church. Nothing's changed in their lives. Uh, but the, the people in general in this country are still spiritually lost, still spiritually searching and lashing on to fill that God-shaped void or to try to in any way, shape or form, which is why Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter and all these extremist, hard-left ideologies are catching traction because people are trying to find something and it's not working, but they're still trying. Right. I think the great shame is that, you know, we have an established church in this country, which is quite rare around the world, a church that is invested in our legislative, invested in our monarchy, our schools, just every aspect of our day-to-day lives, pretty much, you know, we have, we are a Christian country. And 
that church, that established church, that state church should be there in the public square saying, you know, these are our values. This is why we are a Christian country. This is the Christian morality. And here is our Lord and Savior. If you're suffering, he's suffering with you. If you're searching, he's searching for you. You know, if you want hope, he is hope. Uh, but it's not doing that. <laughs> it's not being yeah, vocal. It's, 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 not, it's not standing firm. Right. I mean, it's, it's fascinating watching some of the state uh, state ceremonies, the, the funeral for the queen, the various royal marriages over here. I mean, the, the liturgy is so beautiful. The music is so beautiful. The the It seems like you'd have such a great platform if someone would just preach the gospel, if mm-hmm. someone would just say the truth. I mean, in some sense, it's the, the Queen Elizabeth, I guess she designed her own funeral, I think. And you that was pretty clear from the robust uh, Christianity of the whole thing. But but it, it does seem like such a wasted opportunity for for real Christians to have a beautiful platform to speak to the whole country, and no one's doing it. That's that's a good point. So thank you for that because that's a real positive. Because I'm I'm so pessimistic these days that I'm always looking at the negative, and I see you know throughout COVID, the church was nowhere to be seen, and when people were lost and lonely and suffering and isolated, the church was not there for them when it should have been. However. We have just seen Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, and I think it was probably the greatest uh, mission and evangelism moment in history after the resurrection. I don't think anyone has put Christianity at the forefront of so many people at the same time around the world ever before. So it is significant, and it is a real miraculous moment. Out of this barren country, we see such Christ-like witness and I wanted to say accidental, but it wasn't. It was on purpose, and you're right. I mean, the Queen did make sure that this happened because she was a servant leader, and she was a Christian, and she understood the importance of her faith, not just for herself, but for her for her subjects. So she's kind are of this- a parting gift. Yeah. yeah, our listener knows that I referenced this book that's read, um, the the day is now far spent by the Catholic Cardinal um, Sarah, and he um. He's from Nigeria, and he says the same thing. He says that the West is failing at the very point where um, at least the Queen stood up, uh, and that was to embrace the patrimony and the gift of the gospel to preach it to the nations. And so I, I just keep coming back to that time and time again. Um, and I was grateful for the Queen, um, even in her even in her death, her confidence in you know in what we actually had to offer the world, despite obviously its its flaws and its failings. It's still, um, in fact, the the proclamation of of the gospel. So it was there is hope. There is there is that hope. But I was you know back to your point about the the culture. You know, the, I I just watched a video that I think that you tweeted of your interaction with. I don't know what was the the occasion, but there was a there was a mob that was gathering around you, um, quoting uh, chanting that you know not a real vicar. And that what was most disturbing about the mob, well, well, I made a joke. Actually, my wife wrote the tweet, but I tweeted it, which I thought was funny. She said, it's not surprising that in a country where less than 1% of the people go to church that they wouldn't understand what a real vicar was. I thought that was I thought that yeah. was pretty clever for her. But what I was most dis- disheartened by, and you can comment on possibly, is that the mob was made up of like, moms and their children and like toddlers like throwing sippy cups and, and around i mean it wasn't like it wasn't like you know hard leftist antifa types it was the you know otherwise normal looking kind of british people who were incensed by your presence for me that was 
you know, I try to live in hope set before us, you know, Peter talks about, but um, there was a moment where I was like, well, goodness, this is going to be an uphill, an uphill battle. If just the very presence of someone who has holds contrary views um, is so alarming and and triggering, well, then um, it's going to be a rough road ahead of us um, in, in some yeah. respects. So well, what was mob, that what, occasion? The mob wasn't uh, wholesome. The mob was, mostly metropolitan liberal elite types. And there were lots of Antifa people there that had been bust in. It was a anti-protest. So I was there for a protest against drag queen story time, because I think it's entirely inappropriate for men dressed as women, scantily dressed to be thrust in and gyrating in front of toddlers and babies. I, I mean, I think it's great that yeah. adults want to read stories to children, but why do they have to do it in that manner? It's baffling to me. But an anti-protest turned up to protest against us at protesting. But I didn't turn up alone. You know, Christ was right by my side and his presence is what agitated their demons. They were physically uncomfortable with us being there. And I thought that was quite something actually, the way that I had to get escorted by the police because it was unsafe for me to be there and I had to go around somewhere else to protest. Just because I'm saying, can we safeguard the innocence of children? Yeah. Like what is wrong, what is wrong with our society yeah, I- with saying that? is seen as evil and, and celebrating the sexualization of children is seen as good. Again, it's yeah. all prophesied, it's all scriptural, but it's still not pleasant to live through. Well, it certainly isn't. And I have to say, I was, I was, um, I've, I've been praying for you more frequently now after watching the interaction and particularly, I thought it was a remarkable show of courage under, under fire. And I um, just was, again, something to behold. And I thought it was um, courageous and admirable of you. So oh, thank, um, you. thank you for your witness. It's a good yeah. insight too. I think that the, the demonic spirit was agitated. I, I'm reminded, I think a, of a tweet that you sent a while back where you said as something like, ask not why children should be allowed to hear stories from drag queens. Instead, ask why they're so desperate to read stories to children. And it's because of that demonic urge to uh, accumulate and to To prey upon consume. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Because we, I mean, we know how we procreate as human beings and how we, and, Marriage is partly for the purposes of procreation, but partly for increasing the people that can worship God, right? <laughs> and, it, and we do that by passing on our Christian values to our children. The woke mob can't do that, especially the LGBT community. can't physically can't procreate, so they can't pass on their values. So how do they do it? Through indoctrination of other people's children. And that's what this is all about. This is about taking your child and giving them their values. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. And they've explicitly said that. I mean, if you read the history of the public school system, what we would call the public school um, in, in here in the US, it was explicitly designed to remove the children from the super, quote unquote superstitions of their parents. Now, there was a decidedly anti-Roman Catholic bent at the time, and there's a big fight between the parochial schools and the public schools. But this is not a 
this is not a secret. This is a this is a stated goal of compulsory state education, which was to reprogram, you know, good little workers, agnostic workers. I mean, this is what they this is what they wanted. And, um, you know, there's been quite a pushback, thank goodness, here in the U.S., um, where is at the moment it's still legal to homeschool your children. But um, mm-hmm. obviously there are countries where it isn't, you know, Germany for one. But I, I think you're exactly right, is that the playbook, the play that's being run seems to be it's just an open secret. And so it's just a question of whether or not people like you and the rest of us are going to push back or, or not. I mean, I think that's that remains to be seen. I mean, the sexuality component of it is was also planned. I mean, this is reading Kaltzman's Rise and Triumph. He mentions Herbert Marcuse, the, the Marxist, who back in the you know, 60s was talking about how how can we create revolutionaries when you know kids are being raised by their parents and their, their traditional values are being passed on well we the way we can we're going to be able to get to them is, is through sex and if we can if we can create this sense that their expression of sexuality is a, is an expression of liberation and their and their parents are those who are holding them back then we've then we've got them and it seems like the drag queen story hour and whole schools here in this country and there over there um, have really just embraced that idea whole hog. It's just directly from a pretty uh, radical Marxist. So. Yeah. And they always tell us what they're going to do and then they do it and we let them yeah. do it. Every Which time. you can watch, right? <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the insight as Nick did too, about the, um, the, the sort of the demonic reality to this. I'm always, I was talking to someone this morning um, we, we actually were talking about the the demonic with respect to the weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. You know, we talk about this and it's it's in my mind, it's been changed a little bit uh, into the not not a punishment, but a reality of what hell will be like. This will be a place where there will be constant weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and I'm reminded of the scene that that you may not have watched, but we certainly watched with with horror uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings, there was the possibility, which turns out to have been right, that he would be amongst those who would overturn Roe versus Wade. And you had you had uh, protesters literally bloodying themselves, throwing themselves up against the door, you know, screaming. And and it was it was you know it was the Gerasene demoniac all over again. I mean, this is what this was. And I, ever since that day, my my prayers have actually my prayers have changed um, because I say, Lord, this is not going to be an argument that we're going to win, you know, with, with sort of come let us reason together. You know, there's not going to be a, there's not going to be a 17 D ultrasound. That's finally going to finally pierce through the darkness of this heart. Like it's got to be a, um, a move of the spirit, you know, and that's sort of the same energy I saw at your, at that protest, you were, you were there. It was like, there's no, there's no, there's no sort of rational sense to, to this, to this reaction here. This was, this was the provocation of of um, the spiritual battle going on um, above this fleshly realm, and um, and I think yeah. it was right. You're right to recognize that. I think I think the meme is facts don't care about your feelings, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's that they're actually their hearts are hardened to the truth. So you can lay out the evidence; they can see, like say, the 4D ultrasound, and you can say, look, this is a breathing, living being, and it. They can't acknowledge it. It's not that they necessarily don't care. It's they can't see the truth anymore because they've hardened right. their hearts. How do you break that down? I suppose we can't, can we? We can only pray to him to convert them and to open their hearts. But it's so difficult when you're there in the moment. I see this all the time. I did um, I did a speech at the Cambridge Union. And they, again, you could see, I, I, I was just trying at least to proclaim the gospel. You could see physically they were agitated. They were, you know, it's, their, their demons were agitated. 
a completely different reaction to what I had at the Oxford Union, where it was still, it was, it was, that was eerie in a different way. But I don't know what we, what do we do as Christians when we see that people are, are possessed to the point of not being able to see the truth and hear the truth? How do we break that down? It seems crazy to say, but the first thing that I think of when you say that, not that I'm claiming that I would ever do such a thing, but it seems like the biblical example is to command the spirit to come out of a person. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds crazy, but I mean, this is exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do when he sent them out. He didn't say that they weren't going to come across these things. He said that they were, in fact, and he said to to have authority over them. Yeah. I suppose we've lost that confidence. I certainly have. Well, I mean, I think the most effective thing, and you do, I mean, is is, is you've. I think the the manifestation of demonic opposition is just is symptomatic of a, a much wider underlying hatred that people have within their flesh for Jesus and the gospel. So you're gonna, you're it's not you're not just gonna have demonic response. It's gonna be people who just who just don't like what the gospel is because the the first part of the gospel is uh, i guess the bad news it precedes the good news is you've got to say okay i'm a sinner and i'm worthy of death and i'm worthy of hell and i need to have uh, my my soul uh, cleansed my heart cleansed and my 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 myself justified and um that's going to make people mad (laughs) not only only demons but people in general so but 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 that's also that that word is the word by which god Amen. Breaks open hard hearts and and, and delivers people from uh, death and hell and the clutches of Satan and the demons. So. Yeah, I mean the preaching office is is can be a, a sort of a, a form of exorcism. I mean, I think in, in this respect, you know, uh, because we don't know where the wind blows, but we know how what what the proclamation um, will bring. You know, or at least or at least that how how we proclaim uh, Paul in Romans ten, and so I think. You know, we can trust that that the law will provoke wrath until it finally kills. And so we don't know if we'll be the death dealing preacher or we'll still be the agitating preacher. But we have the confidence that that will happen. I mean, I was reminded I just talked about this yesterday in a rector's forum. There's a there's a Baptist like um, I don't know, like conference center up in New Jersey that's rebuilding a pier uh, that was that was torn down during and it's in the shape of a cross. And there's like, of course, the local um, LGBTQ plus um, community is incensed because it's I mean, I guess they have like a lot of drone aficionados or something, because literally the only way you could tell it was in the shape of a cross is if you were flying over it. And yet just the very existence of what Mm -hmm. that means was was an agitation. And so I was explaining to the congregation uh, or the the people in my class, I was like, I'm just going to help you understand this theologically, because this is not about aesthetics of dock architecture this is because the cross the cross is an offense until it finally is the 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 means of your salvation you know and this is this is what we're watching real time and it's it's fascinating from one perspective and it's it's um troubling as a father and a husband obviously but it's um you know it's something we have again back to the scriptures been promised you know in this world you will have trouble but take heart i've overcome the world and so it's the challenge that we have put before us I mean, shift gears a little bit, but I wanted to ask a question about, um, I guess, ha- since the, the Church of England has essentially apostatized, <laughs> have, you had, have you experienced people coming out of the Church of England? Is, is that, has there been an increase in, in that? Or... Yeah, so a few people have joined and are joining the Free Church of England. 
and, and likewise with, with the other jurisdictions over here. Uh, not as many as I thought might. And I've visited the ordinary recently, and I thought I thought maybe more people would be going over there too. I don't want to be too judgmental of my of my peers, but I, it, I I'm just going to lay it out there. Look, I just don't think people have as much faith as they should have. I think people are trapped by worldly goods, the the beautiful churches, the stipends, the houses, the prestige that comes along with being the parish priest. I think a lot of those trappings are really difficult to separate yourself from. And unfortunately, people are sticking by an apostate church with heretical bishops. I think it's a great shame, not just for them, but for their congregations. And the good priests that I have spoken to are saying things like, I am just going to hunker down in my congregation, in my parish, just I'll do what's right. So I'm like, can you do that? Because if we are Anglicans, we believe in the episcopacy because we believe in apostolic succession and, and we're not congregationalists. We can't just say, I will focus on my parish. If your bishop is a heretic and you are a vicar vicariously ministering <laughs> for your bishop, that makes you a heretic too. Yeah, it seems so short-sighted too. I mean, just from a, a pragmatic perspective, you, you're not going to live forever. And then and what happens after you die or after you retire, yeah. you, you just... You, you're handing your congregation over to the wolves, really. Yeah. Your bishop, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how exactly it runs over there, but doesn't the bishop have the main say in who comes, who would come next to to a church? So just from this, a point of succession, how can you stay and not try to keep your people from... But uh, the alternatives, the alternatives yeah. are difficult. You know? Yeah, yeah. Coming over to a Gafcon church, we don't have the beautiful buildings, or we, we have a few of them, but not as many. We don't have the money for the, the big stipends, and we don't have the prestige of being invited to all the fancy civic dues. So, you know, it is a sacrifice, but then we are called to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It's just reminding me. In the Episcopal Church in America, my sense always was that the congregation in the pews was more faithful than the clergy that served them who were even themselves a little more faithful than the episcopacy that was supposed to serve them. <laughs> is that, fair. is that the same situation? And if so, how goes it with the people in the pews? What are, yeah. what are they doing? That's a good question. That's very accurate. And I think, you know, I, I know lots and lots of very faithful priests, so I don't want to be sounding like I'm putting them down, uh, but I don't know that many faithful bishops. Uh, most of the bishops are wets at this point in, in this country. They're all liberals, pretty much. Uh, there are less than a handful of good conservative or good orthodox, I should say, Christians that are bishops. But the congregations are still faithful. The congregations are still thirsty for the truth. And it's them that are being let down. Uh, in terms of what does that mean? I don't know. I suppose accountability is the issue, isn't it? If the bishops aren't providing accountability because they are the ones that are wet, then it's, it comes from the congregations to provide that. But also, I think the, the higher up you get in the church, in the in the hierarchy, you know, the, the closer you get, the more of a target you are for the devil. So I think it's obvious that this would be the case. Yeah, you know, I think is we, it still uh, is it still sort of a the you know a lot of what i as an american think of as going on in the church of england is probably completely erroneous but is there the same the same idea in england as there is here where if your church starts to fail you you might very well just find another one is the is the more parochial 
feeling in England. We're like, this is my parish church. So this is where I have to be. Is there less of an idea that a person who felt let down by their church could find something else? A bit of both. So it depends where you are, but very good question. I think if you're still outside of the cities, you you belong to your parish and your parish belongs to you. And I think that's the way it should be. It's fantastic. In the cities, however, people do shop around and personal preference plays a large part in where people go to church, which is unfortunate because it means lots of parishes are failing. And that that's not good because, you know, I, I keep going on about this, but I think it's the only place in life where we actually have true diversity. And we meet, you know, old people, young people, men, women, black, white, it doesn't matter. It's just because where you live, but that also strengthens your community and the people you live with and around. And you, I think in a time where we don't even know our next door neighbors anymore, that's such an important thing to, to relish and hold on to. So it's a great shame to see that that separating and, and dying out in the cities, but it's all you know, it's idolatry, isn't it? It's, it's vanity. It's, it's selfish. Kind of, I want what I want, so I'm going to go where I can get what I want, rather than actually this is where I live. This is my parish. And if you've got a wet vicar, then again hold them to account because that's that's what the congregation is there for. Yeah, I saw that firsthand. Um, I was ordained in the Diocese of Europe, uh, the Church of England Diocese of Europe, and I spent about almost six years overseas um, in Berlin and Vienna. And and I had a wonderful parish in Vienna, and I don't think Patrick listens, but he was a great training incumbent, as they say. But we saw all over in the Diocese in Europe, what happened to your point is that we had all, a lot of uh, uh, immigrants come in and often from the global South Anglican churches. And so they'd show up, you know, with like a King James Bible and a 1662 prayer book and sort of Sound. demand that the that the vicar, you know, preach from the Bible and don't go contrary to the prayer book. And it was fascinating for me to watch because here I was just a newly ordained priest and I was just trying to keep my mouth shut and get my doctorate done and just kind of observing. But it was really I was I took great joy when I when I would hear people complain about such and such, you know, Nigerian that showed up or such and such Sudanese or such and such Kenyan who was demanding that, you know, that he change his preaching or that he changed. Yeah. You know, and I was just like was I was thanking the Lord. I was like, thank you, Jesus, that you're 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 strengthening these congregations. And uh, and we had we were in Vienna where the U.N. is. And so we had probably 50 percent were were non-Western um, uh, Anglicans. And so, you know, the junior warden was a guy who was part of the Nigerian embassy. He was just rock solid. Um, Sam Ifiagu, if he's listening, uh, God bless you, Sam. But he um, he I was greatly comforted by that. And so to your point, there is a there is a vehicle by which the congregation can very well um, hold the vicar accountable. Now, of course, if the bishop doesn't care either, you've got problems. But but at least there's there's some recourse. So that was that was heartening to see as well. I love that. So how dare they expect me to do my job? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm awesome. loving. I can't wait to see you guys in Africa because I'm loving the Africans at the moment. I th- I do really think that you know, the British Empire sent missionaries all around the world to spread the gospel, and now it's time for them to come back and return the gospel because we have lost it and we need evangelizing, not just England but the West in general. Amen. No, yeah, I remember how how thankful I was. Left, you know, you, your your church destroys itself, and you feel like you've there's no foundation under your feet, and 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 yet here were these African provinces who are so rock solid coming in and willing to preach the gospel, and and you could you know it's really helpful as a pastor of a congregation to be able to say, look, yeah, our our, our bishop is is a heretic, but he's among a very small minority worldwide of Anglicans. Look how many look how many Anglicans, not just people but bishops anglican bishops and anglican archbishops who are standing firm for the gospel it's a great a great um encouragement to see to see that 
And yeah. that's what's so important about this as well, Matt. That's what why I'm so disappointed in the church because they're de- they're detooling the priests. So the priests that do want to do well and do want to stand firm in the faith can no longer go. This is what the church teaches. They can no longer use that yeah, authority because right. it's been stripped from that's underneath right. them. That's right. That that was the only cover I had when over there because you know I, I didn't. No one was really asking me, and we didn't do a ton of weddings. But you know because the official teaching was that man marriage was between a man and a woman. I always just was defaulting to that, and in good good you know church of england fashion no one was pushing back at least officially on me at that point and so um i don't know what i i don't know what i would do at this point you know i, I probably wouldn't be able to get ordained i guess I and mean, i'm not exactly sure but but i know that that was a great comfort for many evangelicals in the church that has been has been stripped from them and so i'm i'm um sympathetic to the sense of feeling adrift at this point well, um well because now more people shop around that priest over there is a bigot i'll go right. to this one because he will affirm that's right my lifestyle and we see this we saw in this we saw this in the episcopal church um and we were grateful with the acna that you know the bishops abdicate their responsibility and then kick the actual yeah. theological decisions down to the parish level which then of course does compromise the vicar one way or the other in a position they were never intended to be in and the bishops sort of wash their hands like pilot you know and say well you know i've said i've said what i've said you know it's like well but it reminded me i don't know if y'all have read this i mentioned it before but i want to pitch it again this peter akinola book who blinks first this is an amazing book um it's his firsthand account um written by um a journalist an african journalist of the entire saga sort of his entire involvement from like the 70s to the present and it was i'm still about a third of the way through because i I can only read so much of it without having kind of a a physical (laughs) psychosomatic reaction to it because i'm like i can't because i'm sitting there it's like watching you know reading history of like the early 20th century before world war one you're like you know you're like you want to jump back and say stop it you know you know don't don't go to sarajevo you know sort of thing but it's really quite quite a remarkable book but to your point calvin the these courageous men um you know these province leaders are inspiring i mean they're inspiring the world you know that's what's that's what's exciting um i remember well i haven't been to gafcon yet but i remember when i was watching the lambeth conference uh i emailed my bishop that morning and said please let me go to gafcon because this is going to be something uh momentous after after what is taking place at this uh conference and so it's going to be a great a great joy and a great encouragement Absolutely. It's, it's be, like being a part of history, isn't it? Like, how do we go forward as Anglicans without the Sea of Canterbury? And how do we, you know, are, are we going to have elections for the first among equals or are we just going to head in a unilateral dis- direction? And how do we stand firm in the faith without um, leadership from England? And I think actually it's quite good on the decolonization front too, because why should England dictate to the rest of the world? Exactly. You were on the track on track to being ordained in the Church of England, is that correct? And then that was, and you were derailed by the yeah. Church. So I, Go ahead. I done the discernment process in the Church of England. I got sent to training, so I did. My, I went to seminary, backed by the Church of England, completed all of that, got right to the end, to the point where I was supposed to be assigned a curacy. And they was it be, was it specifically because of your beliefs they. Well, it's one of these things that we'll yeah. never know. So they <laughs> say, Calvin, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Oh, okay, standard right, right. argument. Because they yeah. know if they say, look, we don't like what you believe, yeah. they're admitting, first of all, they're not Christians. But secondly, that it is a protected characteristic under law, so I could sue for discrimination. So they always say, it's how you say it. And I'm never hostile, never aggressive. I'm always meek and mild in how I put my message across, but I always speak the truth, uh, or at least I always try to. 
And so it always gets me when they see that. And I've had that just this week, just gone, actually. I got cancelled from, I was on the board of the Royal Academy of Dance, which is, they they were in charge of ballet schools and stuff in this country. And uh, after I did that protest, which you spoke about at the start, against the sexualization of children, they sacked me from the board. And they said, Calvin, we are, we're tolerant of all views. So it's not your views, but it's how you put them across. And I was like, okay, so in what way did I put them across that was incorrect? And they, of course, they can't answer the question. They won't answer the question, but it's just so disheartening. That is remarkable. I've, I've watched you, and you're you're mild. I mean, you you are very pointed. Right? This this is what the truth is. This is where the lie is. But you're you're not raising your voice. You're not calling anyone names. You're not yeah. you're not you're being very polite. So it, that's pretty clearly a fabrication on their part. I mean, it's. It's what you're. It's what you're saying. Yeah. It's not. It's, it's always the way. But this is yeah. what the church said. Yeah. The church said essentially, I was too conservative for them theologically and politically, yeah. and it, it manifested itself in several ways. But essentially, the bishop of London, who is a white middle class woman, upper middle class woman, said to me, "You know, the church is institutionally racist." And I said, "I don't believe that. I think that's coming from critical race theory. I think that's neo-Marxist. I don't think it's compatible with the Christian faith. I think the individuals are fallen. Individuals." can be racist, but I don't think this institution is. And if it is, the way that it's being put across sounds like a new form of virtual sin. I have, to, I cannot say that I believe that this church is institutionally racist. It was almost like a new creed that she wanted right. to admit to. Right. And I couldn't. So, you know, she didn't give me any, um, she didn't ordain me. Was that, the, was that the final conversation you had with her? At that? Pretty much. But I mean, I, was, yeah. I wasn't yeah. under her anyway, because I don't believe in the ordination of women. So yeah. I was under a flying bishop, but he still answers directly to her. The whole system is corrupt. It doesn't right. really work. But our, our last conversation was something along the lines of, well, you know, come back in a year. We'll see where we are then. So do you but think that, it's interesting? Have changed? Yeah. I mean, it's, to, to me, it's fascinating that that happened to you um, before the complete apostasy took place. So do you feel like there was some kind of providence going on there and keeping you from the Church of England, and now and now you have a great witness outside the church, that, that church anyway. And I, I think so that God would take care of you, that's the whole thing. Yeah, I was saved from this, this experience that a lot of my peers are going through at the moment, and yeah. I'm sorry for them. But I wouldn't have been able to serve in the way that I'm serving if I was in the Church of England, mm-hmm. because we are in a, an embarrassed time and ashamed time to be Christians. And every time I go on TV and say, you know, marriage is between one man and one woman, or, you know, every life, every human life is sacred, and therefore we should protect unborn babies from abortion. And all these, any time I said anything like that, even not, even things that are less controversial than that, every single time I would have had a battle with my bishop or my bishop's bishop. And it just would have been untenable and unsustainable. I wouldn't have been able to do any form of public ministry. But even even parish ministry would have been difficult keeping my mouth shut when I'm seeing, you know, all of these untruths being told on a daily basis yeah. and rebaptizing people that have supposedly changed genders or blessing people that are in same-sex unions. I just I couldn't have done it. So I think God knew that. And where he's put where he's put me, I'm able to get on with both my parish ministry and my public ministry. And I thank God for that every day. So it sounds like you now have a very supportive Episcopal structure and and you can you're free to speak and you know say say what needs to be said is that is that correct yeah yeah my my bishops get complaints about me every day (laughs) (laughs) and they always say look we do not believe everything that Calvin believes we do not share his politics 
We do not share all of his views. We share many of them, but not all of them. But Calvin is free to say what Calvin wants to say, as long as he's not, you know, uh, as long as I'm not being a heretic or telling lies or something, then, right. you know, so they believe in free speech. And they believe, they fundamentally believe that I'm trying to, in my best way, trying to proclaim the gospel. And that's what we're called to do as ministers. So they're like, yeah, do it. And if people complain, we'll bat those complaints away. And I, I, again, I thank God for that too. And we are completely, so my direct bishop and I are completely different theologically and liturgically and all of that stuff. But those things don't matter. Because we believe in we believe in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior for our Amen. salvation, and that's what matters. Amen. Well, our listener can obviously see the the overlap between a lot of your your story and uh, some of ours, with having been delivered from compromised positions that were ultimately destroying, eating away at our souls. At least I can speak for myself. Um, you know, being forced to stay quiet or 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 feeling. Um, uh, hindered in whatever capacity from actually saying what I believe to be true and having been delivered from that um, uh, is, is, is a great joy and a great freedom. And I, I can I just echo and resonate that resonate with you in that. I had a question for you just at the, as we're rounding the bend. I mean, I don't know how much more time we, I mean, I, we can talk about this, we we'll talk with you for hours. I mean, I don't know, but tell us about, I mean, I don't know much about you as a person. I mean, I, I know this public figure, you know, but like, tell you know, what do you, you have a family, you have a, you have a, uh, what are your avocations? Like, what do you do other than, you know, uh, provoke uh, people on, on, uh, in a wonderful way, a wonderful way? Uh, good, good questions. Uh, what do I do? So this is something I've been battling with very recently, actually, because I've been getting quite down about the world around us. It feels like everything's doom and gloom and imploding. And maybe it is. And maybe we're, we're attuned to it. Or maybe it isn't. I'm just too, too involved. Um, but I've been thinking, you know, I have to have more joy. And of course, we always have hope because we have the hope of everlasting life in Jesus Christ. But living in the moment, that doesn't always make it easier, no matter how much we pray. And I think a lot of my time is spent in faith and politics. Pretty much all these books you see behind me are either theological or political. I'm always either on TV or in church. And I know the dangers of that. But I, I, I hadn't found a way of facing it head on until I went to confession recently and I'm not, Bridging anything, but the priest said, "What's your hobby?" I was like, "Oh, yeah, good question." <laughs> so, so I've recently started a hobby again that I haven't done in a good number of years, just as a form of escapism and downtime. That is not political and not faithful, and just I, I had a problem of of always wanting to be productive, but I think that is dangerous, and that's how you lead to burnout. So I've I've started playing video games again. And I, even that, I have dilemmas over it because I, I see people that are really addicted to video games and I see that a lot of young men in particular don't succeed in, in life and don't contribute to the world because they're getting all of their accomplishments from these virtual achievements. So I, I, and I see the dilemmas there and a lot of the content isn't very wholesome. However, it's, yeah, it's that Mario Kart just keeps pulling you back, right? I just, <laughs> just, <laughs> it is it's the passion that, you know, I was a gamer growing up and it is one avenue that I know I can vent and get my frustration out and also find some joy and just escape for a bit. So I've been playing um, Hogwarts, actually. I mean, people oh, might, you know, oh, people might take issue with that. But <laughs> 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 well, I thought, as a, as a turf, like, <laughs> and it's, it's a beautiful game, it really is. But I wanted to support J.K. Rowling as well. So even even in, in my past, I'm getting some politics involved. <laughs> There is one more thing I wanted to ask you, which is about how you make a distinction between what you do 
on TV commenting on the political nature of the world and what you do on a Sunday morning proclaiming the good news to your people. I think that a lot of clergy really wring their hands about whether and to what extent they need to bring the the cares of the city into the pulpit on Sunday morning. How do you handle that? That is a very good question. I'm thankful that you asked it because people uh, often make assumptions about what I preach at the pulpit and think it's all very political and that I'm like some right-wing loon. And I mean, I am, but that's not what I preach. <laughs> at the pulpit, <laughs> I preach the gospel. And that usually means I'm talking about the gospel that I've just read uh, that day. As in, I look at the lecture, I apply my sermons or my homilies around the gospel reading for the day. And I very rarely bring any worldly politics into it if I can help it. If there's a useful anecdote that really needs to be t- told, then I will. But I, it's it's entirely gospel-based. And I can do that because I get all the other stuff out right. in the media. And I do think it's important to separate the two because I spend so long talking about these lefty, woke priests and bishops who will spend all day talking about Brexit and climate change that I don't want to do the exact opposite of them. And I'm very cautious and wary of that. It's not that you're thinking clergy shouldn't address political issues. You just have this whole other venue in which you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Those people to whom you regularly preach, do they have any kinds of questions about your political activity? Do they have <sighs> any objections to what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, that's another good question. So um, the par- I preach every week. Every single week I preach, um, well, not every week, sometimes I get a guest preacher, but most weeks I preach, which I'm also very thankful for because I wouldn't have had that opportunity. And a lot of my peers who were ordained at the same time as me don't get that opportunity in the CV. In regards to the congregation, I mean, I love them, they love me. Doesn't mean we're all politically aligned. I I remember one conversation of one that says, oh, I can't believe you work with that Nigel Farage. I hate that Nigel Farage. I'm like, actually, if you get to know him, he's actually a pretty nice guy. But also, (laughs) I don't... I don't share a show with him. You know, I have my own show, my own platform. I do my own thing. So what he says doesn't represent what I think and vice versa. But I also get people turn up to church specifically because they've seen my show and because they want to see how I worship and take part in that. And that's that also has its pros and cons, obviously. But that's also great at getting people in. But again, afterwards at, at tea time or coffee time, I'm open to conversations about anything. So if people want to talk about what's been on the show, what hasn't, that's great. And if people want to talk about, you know, the Oxford Union debate has been a big one, obviously. So people are talking about marriage and, and what that means. So it, it can get the conversation going, which is fantastic. But it's not the it's not the focus. On that note, and I think people might be thinking it or mentioning it in the comments and stuff, I'm always very cautious and very aware that it's not about me. And I don't want to fall into that trap because that obviously that's one of the sins, the pride and all of that stuff is one of the areas that the devil often gets us. But also for people that come, I don't want them to think it's all about me. And I want them to know it's about one man. It's about Jesus Christ. And if they're coming because of me, they're not going to leave because of me. Uh, so I want them, whatever reason they come to my church, to experience, to encounter Christ and leave having known that experience was with Jesus Christ. Amen. I, I I love that. And I really respect the fact that, that that you draw that distinction between the pulpit and and your role in the media. At the same time, I love that you wear your collar while you're doing news commentary because you're you're not you're not you're not not a Christian or not a minister while you're commenting on the news. And I appreciate you you being willing to to say as a Christian minister the things you're saying. That's right. Publicly. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a fight to keep my dog collar on. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks, as always, to our listener for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you would like to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy, and a very special thank you to Calvin Robinson. It's a great conversation. We're so happy to have had you. Um, I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ will be standing firm. Mm-hmm.